Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Lindsay McEwen is a professor in environmental management at the University of the West of England, Bristol. She specialises in environmental management and is the director of the Centre for Water, Communities and Resilience. Lindsay has recently published her DRY utility resources, DRY standing for Drought, Risk and You, and is particularly keen to engage people on water risk and water risk management in the UK. You can access her free Z cards on drought at www.dryutility.com dot info forward slash learning. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today. What can you tell us about your work and your current research on drought? Okay. Um, over the last 30 odd years, I've worked in, in water risk um, in a variety of ways. Most of my work has been um, on flooding. But in 2014, we used some of the same sort of skills and approaches, but in the context of drought. And so within that um within the project that um, has been described, Dry, Drought, Risk and You, that started in uh, April 2014. It was one of four projects funded through the UK Natural Environment Research Council. And it had a focus on, on drought, which, as people may know, is a deficiency in terms of water over a prolonged period, with particular concerns to um, the impact of that in the UK context. Um, and we were looking at a variety of different sectors within the project. So drought in the UK is, a, is, a, is an odd risk. It's pervasive, it's hidden, um, and people may not be aware of it until it's really quite advanced. And one of the things that characterises drought is that all droughts are different. They're different in terms of their intensity, their, um, their, their spatial extent, and their duration. So that's quite tricky in terms of preparing for them because it's a bit of unknown uncertainty in, in that preparation. The other thing that's really tricky about UK drought is that actually memory of it is quite ambiguous and also quite scarce in the sense that much of the memory of UK drought is uh, relates to the 1976 drought, 1976 drought. And of course, um, that's older people that remember that. And actually, their memories of the drought are sometimes quite positive of some of those. It's the halcyon days of youth and ABBA again. Um, and so, um, but you need to you need to dig deeper for um, to find out more about the um, stories of hardship and drought. Okay, and so for example, agriculture and livestock agriculture suffered very badly. Uh, there's a good book by Evelyn Cox on the um, on the drought of nineties. He she wrote it as a diary, uh, which is worth having a look at. Okay, so the dry project. What the aim of the dry project was to produce uh, an evidence base, a new evidence base that brought not just science together, but science and stories. So different types of knowledge. So recognising that a lot of the research that's been done on UK drought has been about modelling, drought risk modelling. And so what we were trying to do there was to recognise there's other sort of knowledge, experiential knowledge, intergenerational knowledge that can be usefully um, drawn on. 
And one of the things that we, so what we were trying to do was to bring those different sorts of knowledge and understanding and perception into the same place. And that's, um, that's what we've been doing within the dry utility is building that up as a resource that brings both the science and the stories of drought together as an evidence base for decision making. Um, and in that, that project, it ran on, in its main form for four years, working in seven catchments across the UK. And they were on, um, they were on hydrometeorological gradients. So we started in the south uh, with the Cornish Foy. We moved up to the Welsh Ebu um, in the Welsh Valleys. Um, we, we studied in the Bristol Froome. We worked with the Bristol people in the Bristol Froome. We uh, worked in the Pang catchment in Berkshire. We worked in the Fens, Beryl's Lean catchment. We worked in the Sheffield Don, moving north. And our most northerly catchment was in an eastern Scottish catchment, which was the Fife Eden. So we worked with groups of stakeholders in those catchments over a sustained period of time. And we were also interested in, uh, as I mentioned earlier, about cross-sectors. So we also worked across sectors as well. So we've got the sort of grid of catchments and sectors, uh, recognising that some catchments have more of some activities in sectoral work than others. Um, so we were working with agriculture and horticulture, business, environment, built environment, health and well-being and public and communities. So those six sectors. So if you look at the Dry Utility website, it will reflect that um, multi-catchment, multi-sectoral uh, approach and the sorts of resources that are there. And it focuses on um, experience of drought in different sectors, the science of that, coping and adaptive strategies, trade-offs and so on. And actually, if you look at the dry uh, utility, then it's got three different sections. It's got the dry story bank, which is a searchable archive or bank of stories. We use the word bank to sort of be synonymous with resource. Um, and then we've got story maps, which are, have been created, and we've got um, over 70 of those. And then we've got the, the third part of the, the story. Uh, sorry, I should say that the story maps try to weave science and stories within the maps. That was our aspiration. Um, and then finally, we've got a set of resources that are facing different types of um, uh, potential users, including uh, schools, members of the community, public, people who want to communicate on, on drought in the UK, information for growers as well. So we've, we, we've, we've, we'll, I'll share later a bit more about the different resources there, but there's quite, we've worked with quite a range of different organisations in, in trying to bring these resources together and to bring UK drought as a risk up into people's, to, into people's radar and to visualise it in, in ways that people can engage with. And I should have said, actually, an important part of this is, you know, it's quite tricky um, getting people to talk about drought. Um, uh, and so we, we quite often went in um, talking about water. And it's quite interesting territory that and bringing these two ideas together about water as a risk and water as a resource. But it's really important, I think, in terms of public engagement, multi-stakeholder engagement about these areas, about bringing those two elements together. Um, the UN um, panel on valuing water uh, describes water as precious, fragile and dangerous. And I think that's quite a good, succinct way of thinking about it, that there are elements of risk and, and, and strong elements, strong elements of risk and strong elements of resource in thinking about water. 
What are the different sources of evidence one might use when investigating drought in the UK? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that we found when we were looking and bringing science and stories together was that there were quite a number of of drought myths that pervaded the um, stories that people were telling us about drought um, and water scarcity in the UK. And there was a very strong sense of um, Britain uh, being, and this was applied to Wales, applied to England, it also applied to Scotland, um, was that uh, of, a, of a wet land and, and a green land. And that was very much our sort of iconic um, imagery of, um, of Britain, whereas actually, uh, you know, the science is telling you something different. The myths were that, you know, water was infinite and free and, and it's a relatively cheap utility in the UK, although, of course, there are issues of um, water poverty. Um, Britain is wet. Droughts don't happen. Actually, the major, main problem is flooding, you know, in a, in a climate change context, uh, that drought only occurs in summer uh, when it's hot, um, that, that drought is, is evidenced when, when reservoirs um, and, uh, run, and lakes run dry. So, there's, and the, you know, there's a whole series of them that um, emerged in our conversations with people. And those, are, those can be seen as areas, I think, to explore because it's not, myths are interesting territory. They're not necessarily black or white. So, yes, some droughts do finish with extreme rainfall. We've seen that in 1976, for example, and that's what people remember, that actually, you know, the Minister of Drought was appointed and then there was very he heavy rainfall in September and, and you know, drought conditions eased reasonably quickly. Um, but that's not always the case and it may not always be the case in the future. So this idea of going in as a, as a sort of learn way of learning and thinking about things around myths, I think is really quite fertile territory. And am I right in thinking the southeast of England is a water stress area and might be a water shortage area as well? Yeah, I mean, water stress is where um, an area has um, water that's insufficient for its needs. And it's clear that there's um, an intersection of different um, issues in uh, the southeast. Uh, obviously, there's a... Um, uh, bringing together of population there that that means there's there's large demand, but also the geology of that area and the water supply is is groundwater, and so there's issues there um, about groundwater storage and water supply uh, from the aquifers, uh, but also other issues around environmental stress when rivers run dry. For example, one of our case study catchments was the Berkshire Pang. And there, there's very uh, emotive imagery um, of, you know, dry riverbeds. Um, actually, there's no water running. And what are the implications of that for the, um, for the species that inhabit those, those streams? There's quite iconic imagery there and concern about environmental stress when rivers run dry and um, what the implications are for the species that inhabit those rivers um, during dry conditions, which happen more regularly there um, than in perhaps in some other areas of the country. But it's, you know, it's the bringing together of high, high uh, population and particular 
geology and types of catchment and types of water supply. Um, but importantly there, if you look at an organisation like Thames Water, you know, it's actively involved in developing communication strategies to try and promote positive water behaviours um, outside drought as well as in drought. And are they the main factors that influence droughts? You mentioned geology as a physical cause and population as a, as a human um, influence. Yeah, I think um, the factors there, obviously the distribution of rainfall across the UK, and we're thinking about rainfall past, present and, and future. If we're looking at climate change scenarios, then we need to be looking at the changes in in, for example, increase the likelihood of increased winter rainfall, um, decreased summer rainfall, and the rainfall that is coming in summer is much more intense and in shorter periods. So, you know, we need to look at the distribution of rainfall both ge geographically but also temporally in, in, at a place. Um, of course, it's also warmer, so there's higher evapotranspiration as well. So, um, just being uh, being aware of that, the underlying geology, the location of aquifers is really quite critical. Um, if you look at the different geological types in the UK, uh, whether it's limestone with sandstone, Cretaceous, um, chalk, and so on, uh, their location influences, um, yeah, the, the 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 availability of water. Um, Cost of infrastructure, and you know, there's there's a whole there's a whole issue around um, about building dams and reservoirs, um, very costly, and actually a public expectation sometimes that that's the way to uh, build yourself out of drought um, drought problems. Um, so this desal I can't say it desalinization plants. You know, that's the if we were in. Um, overseas then for example in Israel that would be one of the solutions that they're using um, yeah and, and the environment agency is you know it's quite high media profile that we don't have enough infrastructure to store water um, from wetter winters to drier summers um, so yeah there's, there's a number of different factors that affect the availability of water um, yeah and and obviously population and demand and the um, physical ways of storing water, both natural and artificial, are important. Is a growing population also a factor in increasing pressure on water sources? Yeah, it's definitely that uh, population pressure is an issue. Um, if we're looking at um, the Office of National Statistics, for example, um, mid-2019, the population of the UK was an estimated 66.8 million. If we fast forward now into um, mid-2041, for example, uh, it's scheduled, uh, projected to reach 72 million. Okay, so we are increasing in population. But equally important is our water behaviours and the use of water. So, for example, the average use of water using 2020 data for, um, I think this data was from water.org, um, but it's 149 litres, okay, per person per day. If you, go, if you were to go to Germany, the figures would be lower, 121 litres per day. It poses questions about how we're, how we're using a water. And water companies are actively trying to change public behaviours to reduce water use. And what's also interesting is that if you actually speak to people about their water use, they underestimate this grossly. For example, water.org did a survey um, and they found that 66% of 18 to 34-year-olds believe their household uses under 20 litres of water per day. 
So there are gross mismatches between actual water use and the reality of water use. And part of that is around sort of hidden water as well, you know, about how water there are, obviously it's used by machines and white um, technology and so on, but also how water is used in other, you know, what people's water footprint is. So, um, yeah, this is really uh, important territory and there's opportunities to think about Obviously, a lot of the um, the messaging is about pinpointed actions, about turning off the tap when you wash your teeth and um, about showering, you know, and the length of showering. But there's also about shifting social norms about how we use water. So, for example, how how we might use green infrastructure and rainwater harvesting, for example, for in schools, perhaps to uh, water um, vegetable patches and so on. So just about thinking about how we change the expectations of the water, the quality of the water, so that it's more that it's water fit for purpose. So that's more about flexibility of water use. But there's also about shifting water demand, you know, and just about people's expectations of, of uh, water and perhaps just and raising it in the public consciousness. Um, because actually there's a lot to learn, I think, uh, in terms of just broader awareness about how, how water is used in our everyday lives. From my A-level geography, I remember the crucial problem in the UK being that there's basically an abundance of water in the north and a shortage in the south or southeast. Is is transfer also a problem as well as behaviour and um, growing population pressure? Yeah, I think this transfer can be an issue, but there are already some approaches to that in a sort of regional sense. For example, the Kilda Water Scheme is about um, transferring uh, water. Um, you have to be a bit careful with abundance because actually it's a relative term and and most areas of the UK, all areas of the UK, are potentially affected by drought. And so we can't assume that there's necessarily going to be an abundance in one place that can uh, recharge uh, water deficit in, in another. Um, so even, for example, if you take areas that you might expect to be quite wet, like the west of Scotland, then, for example, in 2012, the, the drought that affects the Scottish islands, um, the Tobermory whiskey distillery had to shut down production because it was on a private water supply. Um, and if we're looking at Nature Scotland, which might be uh, an organisation that looks after nature in, in, in the Scottish context, you know, they've recently been warning about increased uh, risk of extreme drought, drought over the next two decades. So the idea that Scotland you know, is wet, uh, for example, and, is, uh, and that the water might be transferred elsewhere or Wales is wet and so on, you know, these are, these are uh, things that need to be un unpicked in a drought, in a drought context. Sorry, and they actually also go back to my second question. I just realised, Lindsay, about myths. It's a bit of a myth that Scotland and Wales are always wet. Yes. Well, we've been working in um, the Eden catchment in Fife, and we were quite, you know, where, where it was easier to talk about drought was during the dry periods. We had a dry period in um, spring 2017, and of course it was um, dry there in 2018 in the summer. And so, yeah, these areas too are are showing signs of drought and water, and um, yeah, the stresses of drought within their within the catchments. The other thing I would say about transfer is that there's quite a temptation to a temptation to perhaps to other it to put it somewhere else, and the water's going. But actually, there's a lot of interest that's now in more distributed models of storage of water. So thinking even down at the household level about how you might try and manage both. For example, both flood risk and drought risk in the same way by increasing the storage within of water within house, households. 
Um, the rain, rainfall harvesting, for example, there's a, a large project in Hull that's been funded through the HRC with that sort of interest now. Its main focus is on flooding, but actually it also has potential um, benefits for for drought. So that interest in the social and the technical, bringing this, this sort of communities and technology together is, is, is a really important area, as well as thinking about big scale type um, transferring, think, that sort of thinking. You won a GA Silver Publishers Award in 2020 for these dry utility resources. Um, could you give us a, a rough outline of what it consists of and what you're hoping to achieve with them? I mean, it's already quite clear that you're hoping to raise awareness, but could you elaborate a bit more? Yeah, I think the idea of the book was that uh, we were keen to engage young citizens, so engaging people early, uh, thinking about, um, yeah, just about um, trying to bring some of those myths and unpick them within a story. And so there are various resources on this, on the Dry Utility website, but the the uh, resource that we got the award for was a dry picture book, which is designed for key stage two, so seven to 11-year-olds. It had, the, the award was for accompanying teachers' notes as well, which have had good reviews from people that have used them. For example, the National Trust and the Riverland Scheme have, have used those resources. So they're not just being used in school-level teaching. Uh, I should say, just in terms of they're available in both English and Welsh. And what, what we did there, we wanted it to be research-informed. The people that produced the book were uh, myself, uh, a colleague of mine, environmental psychologist, two teacher trainers, who work? Who worked with us? Who um, from different disciplinary contexts, um, and a socially engaged artist. And we worked. It was a different type of uh, development of a of a book. It wasn't that, like we gave it to somebody to design. It was a co-productive process. So we all worked on on the production of the book over a period of time and, and have an ownership of its of its content. Yes. So the the book was um, designed, it was funded through NERC, so it's research informed. And it, the idea was to try and promote awareness of different drought in its different forms, um, the diff- its impacts, the different ways you could ad- adapt. And very importantly, where you might have personal agency to do something with it for yourself, your family, and within communities, and to try and promote that, that sort of agency within uh, young people. So yes, that, so that's the book. But additionally, I just say that was for key stage uh, two. We've additionally co-produced um, uh, six sets of learning resources with the Geographical Association, which these are designed for um, GCSE level, and they're all available on the um, Geographical Association GA website. We've also produced the, the, we've produced a set of Z cards, which are designed to try and bring to the attention the different myths we've identified and also think about adaptive strategies. The Z cards are, they're like little business cards um, and they fold down into a little uh, business card format and there's 46 panels on them. So we've, we've, that's available as an online book. It's actually also available as a hard copy. We're intending to give you some, Harry. Um, uh, yes, and, and, and we've also got maps, oh, sorry, maps, posters. Posters, we've got posters. We've put the panels into a poster format, both A3 and A1, so that um, schools can print them out. Because I think the, we worked with the cartoonist John Elson in producing the, the, um, the Z cards and I think they're quite engaging cartoons there that actually lend themselves to visual communication. And that's targeting key stage three and, and uh, the lower school and secondary schools, is that right? 
Yeah, I think I think the Z cards, there's something there. There's sort of like little distilled essences of things to make you think. And so although at the time we were producing them really more for perhaps adult audiences, uh, we are we were um, as we produced them, we were thinking actually these are quite attractive and actually schools are likely to like them. Uh, the fact that you've got these sort of small resources that actually have a huge amount of um, potential for discussion within a very small thing, which um, when you un- unfold it, it's there's a lot to it. So, uh, yeah, we're promoting the Z cards across all age groups because we were quite conscious about the way we were communicating on them um, just to make it accessible for, um, you know, people with different uh, reading and learning ages. And the final thing I've got on my list, which is I just to promote it because I've been working with the Nash- National Allotment Society. Um, and one of the groups that's really sensitized to uh, lack of rainfall and soil moisture um, deficits, you know, dry soils, are growers. And they are really an uh, early warning system for drought conditions in communities. And so we've worked with the National Allotment Society um, over the whole of the project. They've worked with us in, in a co-productive way all the way through. But one of the things we've done towards the end is produced um, seven guides with them, which have just recently pr- been promoted in their in their national promotion week, um, which was, um, I'm trying to remember the date, but it was quite, it was in July, I think. Um, so that's, that's, and that's a collaboration that's continuing on. I think if we're looking at how we communicate communicate drought and actually thinking about what who are the water sensitized groups and growers are definitely a really uh, a really good way in also about adaptation and water harvesting for example we've talked about a uh, personal agency in in a really short answer could i quickly ask you um finally um are there any actions that you want to encourage uh, any listeners to do right away today i think um just to think if if you can get into the way of thinking about water as both a risk and a resource, I think that's a really transformative way of thinking because actually it 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 alters the way you might behave in relation to it. Think about your water footprint, find out about it. There are websites that allow you to 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 find out more information and just think about how it might be changed, reduced. Um, think about what hidden and embedded water, means you know how much water does it take to make a pair of jeans how much water does it take to uh, make a mobile phone these are things that you know are quite alien territory for some but actually you know it's it's really interesting how much water does it take to uh, create a, a kilogram of almonds um, how is water being exported from water stressed countries to the UK in salad crops, et cetera, et cetera? There's all sorts of moral issues in, in, in this as well, which are quite difficult to navigate. Um, and also just thinking about adapting about water and water quality and fitness for use, because actually there are ways in which you can recycle water. You need to be aware of that because obviously you don't want to put chemicals onto crops, you know, and you have to be careful and just think through about what you're doing. And But there's plenty of guidance out, that, out there, for example, from the Royal Horticultural Society and, and so on. People are becoming much more aware of the need to, to think about water creatively and and its use and to, to value it within um, different settings, including the, the, the home. Thank you again for joining us today, Lindsay, and good luck for the launch of your dry utility resources. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com.
Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.